Thank you, Brother Dale. Let's uh, finish up Psalm 24 tonight. I've enjoyed uh, preaching out of this, and I hope that uh, you've enjoyed it and that it's ministered to you. And uh, you remember when we first talked about this, we said we don't exactly know what was going on at this time, but the way that it is worded gives us uh, some clue. And the early church thought that this was describing Jesus at his, as his ascension when he was lifted up before the disciples, remember, and uh, taken up into heaven. And uh, they thought that uh, when this is taking place, lift uh, up your heads, O ye gates, and be opened up, ye ancient doors, and let the King of glory in. And then from heaven they cried out, Who is the King of glory? And then the angels escorting Jesus cried out, The Lord, strong and mighty in battle is he. And those gates of pearl opened up and Jesus is welcomed into heaven. Well, that certainly could be because it sounds kind of like that too. But a lot of people believe that this was the entrance of the Ark of the Covenant back into the old city of Jerusalem, going through those ancient gates and uh, coming back to the place where it belonged, coming back to the tabernacle. The temple had not been built yet. And David writes this as a uh, song of praise and uh, the, the pageantry and the celebration that is going on here. You can imagine how excited the people were. Just to refresh your memory, King Saul, the predecessor of David, had gone to battle against the Philistines. They were losing. They were having a hard time. And so Saul says, well, go get the ark. We'll bring the ark in, and then God has to bless us. It's that kind of thing that if they could bring the ark in, then God would be trapped or tricked or manipulated somehow into giving them the victory. Well, God had rejected King Saul, and um, do you remember what happened? The ark gets captured by the Philistines, and it's a really a cool story. You remember they put the ark in the temple of Dagon, their god, where else are you going to put an Israeli God? The Philistines were idolaters. They thought that was the Israel's idol. And of course it wasn't. And they put him in there, uh, put the ark in there in the uh, temple of Dagon. And you remember they go through uh, about a three-day period where every day they go in and uh, Dagon is bowed before the ark or he's broken up or something like that. And then they started getting sick, having tumors and things like that. And so they had to get rid of Israel's God is what they thought. They put him on a cart and they uh, led the cart to the border of Israel. And then the uh, Israelis, by this time Saul had been killed and was off of the scene. David is the king. And so they have a celebration, but they leave the Ark of the Covenant on the ox cart. God never said for the Israelis to carry the Ark on an ox cart. That's what the Philistines did. They didn't know any better, and God was merciful to them. But the Israelis did. They didn't have any priests. They didn't have the poles. They weren't carrying it up on their shoulders as they were supposed to. And so as they're bringing it home, I guess the ox cart probably hit a rock, maybe hit a hole or a rut or something like that. And the ark starts to slide. And Yuzo, you remember, reached out and touched it, smitten dead immediately. Well, that made David mad, so they stopped the procession and left the ark there for a while. But eventually, it came time to bring the ark back home. 
Now, because they didn't have a temple, remember it had been in David's heart to build a temple, and I wondered, as I was reading this today, if this is the occasion that made David go, you know, it's not right that I live in a palace of luxury and uh, God dwells in a tent, the tabernacle that Moses had built in the wilderness so many hundreds of years before. And so uh, David wants to build a temple for the Lord. And the Lord says, look, I don't dwell in anything that is on earth. And uh, I don't want you to build the temple anyway. That'll be your son's job. So David, the rest of his life, he just amassed material for the temple so that Solomon could build it. But maybe it was during this situation when they're bringing the ark back into Jerusalem. Maybe that's when David said, this isn't right that we just put it in a tent somewhere. But it was in that tent where the Holy of Holies was, and it was in that tent that had been consecrated to the service of the Lord and that God had anointed way back under Moses. And so the ark belongs there in the Holy of Holies. And of course, only the high priest could go in there, and even then, only one time a year. And he went in fearfully because he had to atone for his own sins first then he would go in and atone for the sins of Israel with the blood of a goat and they had bells around the bottom of the garment so that if something were to happen to him they could hear it and then uh, tradition tells us that they had a rope tied around his waist so that if they heard the bells they knew that he had fallen or been smitten with death and so then they would pull the rope to get him out because they couldn't go in and retrieve the body. All of this kind of stuff you remember. And I hope that it's stirring all of that up for you. But this has not taken place for some time. But now the ark is coming back. Now what were the Jews to think about the ark returning to Jerusalem? It was as if God himself were coming back. That God's blessing was coming back upon them. That worship could resume as they knew it and as they needed it to be, that the high priest this year could go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the sins of Israel. I mean, everything is being set aright. They've got a king who loves God, unlike King Saul. They have the ark back. They're putting it into the tabernacle. Everything is going to resume and be as it should. Have you ever had a time where something happened, well, kind of like when Brother Dale has his birthday, and I feel a little better because then he's a year older than me again, where it's like everything got set right. And I've teased him for years. I said, uh, on this day, your birthday, the universe is back in order and everything is as it should be. And um, have you ever had that kind of feeling? Boy, maybe this is the time when things are going to work, when things are going to be right. This is a time when there's going to be joy. Some people feel that at the first of the year. But unfortunately, troubles and trials don't watch the calendar always, do they? And uh, there are those times when finally we uh, can breathe a sigh of relief and we can say, finally, this, this, this is it. This is what I'm looking for. And that's the way all of Jerusalem is feeling. So now, as they are doing this and bringing the Ark of the Covenant in, think of it like this. It's a royal celebration. It's spiritual and it's royal. When you watched the coronation of King Charles III, there was a lot of spiritual stuff that was in there. England is moving 
in a secular direction. But one thing that they couldn't get away from is all of those thousand-plus-year-old rituals and ceremonies that they did with him. I don't think he believes a word of it, but nonetheless, it was there broadcast for everyone to see. And the Archbishop of Canterbury was reading Scripture and different things were happening like that. Some of the anthems that were being sung were old, old classical pieces of music in praise to the Lord. And it was absolutely beautiful when you saw all of that happening. And as a history buff, it was amazing to think they had been doing that for all of these years for every king and every queen of England. And it was no different for him. Well, as we get ready to read this psalm, I want you to think about this. This is a time of tremendous excitement, tremendous joy. You can imagine the crowds that would line the streets. You could imagine the singing that is going on. And you could imagine just the beauty of all of this as the priests in their robes are carrying the ark by those poles on their shoulders. And as they make their way to the temple mount, and they go to the tabernacle there and they place it where it is supposed to be. And everybody sings and they shout and there's tears and there's laughter. There is great joy and great celebration because to them that is the symbol of the covenant. That's the symbol of the presence of God. And it's as if God has come back to Jerusalem and back to the people that, he, uh, that are the descendants of Abraham, the ones that he made the covenant with. So no wonder they are feeling good about this whole situation. So I want you uh, to look in Psalm 24, and I want us to uh, read this because it says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Verse 8. Well, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Of glory, And then David says, Selah, stop and think about that. You know, that's a good thing to do because we read those kind of things so fast and it's repetitive and you know how we are about repetition. Yeah, 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 I got that. Same way that you were with your parents when your mom would tell you to do something and tell you to wear your, it's cold outside, wear your, wear your coat today, your heavy coat today, be sure you get your gloves, be sure you get your hat, don't forget your lunch as you're going out the door. Remember those kind of things? And you just kind of, yeah, 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 I got it. Heard that before, you told me that about 15 times. And why does she say it so many times? Because she cares. And she doesn't want you to forget. Now, whenever we find repetition, particularly in the Old Testament, as I've told you before, that's God's way of putting things in large font, bold print, because he wants us to see that. So what's the point of all of this? God is the king. And he is the one with power. He's the one with glory. He's the one who matters. He's the one who reigns. The other gods of the nations, they don't matter because they're empty. They're nothing. And the only energizing power that they have is the power of demons. And they are defeated. And uh, everything else is just superstition. And it is nothing. 
And we find that in different places in the Psalms and even in the New Testament. Just, it's just whatever it is. It's the work of man's hands. But this is different. This is the true and the living God. The God who created them. Psalm 100, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Serve the Lord with gladness. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. And be thankful unto him and bless his name. This is what is happening in all of the pageantry around there. And as we uh, think about the presence of the Lord, the God that created them, the God that called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, the God who gave Isaac to Abraham, and then Isaac had his sons, Esau and Jacob, and through Jacob, later his name was changed to Israel. All of these are the descendants of Israel, and even the tribes that they belong to are named after Jacob's sons. They're thinking about all of this. They're thinking about how the Lord brought them into this land. They're thinking about how the Lord has sustained them through many dangers, toils, and snares. Well, if anybody had uh, if that described anybody, that would describe the nation of Israel even to this day. Trouble and heartache and attacks and death and all kinds of things were going on. But they're here and they're in the land. They are in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital. They have a new king and the king has united all the 12 tribes of Israel and they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back. You have to realize that for most of these people, they probably never laid eyes on that box. You know why? They weren't allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Again, as you know, only the high priest could do that, and only once a year. So the average rank-and-file person had never seen it. They'd heard of it. They had read about it in the Torah, in the book of Exodus, but they had never seen it before. Can you imagine them lining the streets in Jerusalem on the road to where the temple one day would stand, on that mountain there, Mount Moriah, they call it Temple Mount today, where Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice before the angel said stop and the ram was put in his place. The place where Solomon would build that magnificent temple, but at this point there's a tent. The tabernacle is there, and the uh, Ark of the Covenant is going to be put in that special place that Moses prescribed the Holy of Holies. So people are watching. Look at that. Can you imagine that ancient box that had been built by their ancestors when they were coming out of Egypt, when they were still around Mount Sinai? Remember all of that from ex Exodus? Built to exacting standards, and that was the place where atonement would be made until Christ would later come and die on uh, Calvary. So the excitement, everything is building up. You can imagine the music, you can imagine the singing, and everybody was dressed probably in their very best. This is not an occasion to show up in your pajamas like you're going to Walmart. Did you see the thing the other day that uh, it's so cold, Walmart is advising people to wear two pair of pajamas when they come to a shop? Well, not like this. This was not a casual event. This is big time. This is the apex. This is bigger even than the coronation of a king. This is the return of the ark from the Gentiles, from the Philistines, to take its rightful place. This is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. They would probably never see this again. So as I was thinking about all of that, I thought about 
how the coming of the ark to those people would symbolize the coming of the Lord back to his people. And they got to thinking. When we read these verses here, it kind of gives us some encouragement too about how we ought to be and how we ought to think because we have a great day coming. Our Lord is going to come. And this time it's not just going to be a symbol of his presence. You remember at the ascension of Christ, the angels said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up for this same Jesus? Not a representative, not a box, not an angel, not an ambassador. This same Jesus will return in like manner. The visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're waiting for that day. We're waiting for that day when we can rule and reign with him on this earth. We're looking for that day when he will be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. We're waiting for that day when we receive our reward. We're waiting for that day when we can be with him and reign with him forever and ever as the Scripture says in the book of Revelation. So, how do we approach the coming of the Lord in the same way that the Jews in Jerusalem were waiting for the coming of the ark which symbolized his presence? Well, let me just suggest some things to you because when you read this, you have to understand it's antiphonal. One group is saying one thing, another group is saying another thing. So, here we come. And the processionals coming in. And maybe somebody or maybe all of them did it. I don't know. But there was a designated time where they would see the city. They would see the gates. And then carrying the ark they would cry out. Open wide ancient gates. And let the king of glory in. And the guards when they heard that. They would come back with. Who is the king of glory? And then those carrying the ark would say, The Lord, strong, mighty, in battle is he. Can you hear it? Back and forth, back and forth as they would do that. And you notice that they did it more than once. Because the first one there was the preparatory thing. It was almost like they're saying, Hey, we're almost there. Every once in a while when Isaac uh, comes to pick me up, and uh, bring me into work. When he does, he'll send me a, a text. When he say, I'm coming through the gate at our neighborhood. And I know to get my stuff, get ready, get my coat on. And, and I go out and I try to meet him. meet him. He was giving me preparation. He was giving me time to get ready. Uh, so he didn't have to wait on me. And I didn't want him to wait. So I would get everything together. That's what's happening here. That first time when they yell that out, they're still a ways away and it is the warning. We're almost there. Get everything ready to open up those gates in the magnificence that's going to happen. Maybe they had trumpets. Maybe they had a choir. Maybe they had some, I don't know what they had. But maybe they had something like that. And the first thing was their signal. Get yourself ready because we're almost there. You know, that's the way that I look when the Lord Jesus in the book of Matthew chapter 24 and places like that, he tells us what the end is going to be and what it's going to be like even before the end comes. You know what he's telling us? Get ready. Get ready. What's the next thing on God's prophetic calendar? The thing that has no warning at all. And that is... 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when the Lord descends from heaven with the shout of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and then we who are on earth, 
living and dead, will be caught up together to meet with him, to meet the Lord in the air, right? That's what we're waiting on. And we're waiting to be with our Lord. And he gives us some warning things. Well, first of all, notice the preparation is uh, point number one. When they first cry out, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Now, the people needed to be prepared. This isn't just an average, everyday type thing. This is a once-in-a-lifetime thing, that, as I said before. So what do you think they did to get ready? I wonder if they had some rehearsals. I wonder if they got instrumentalists together. I wonder if they got choirs together. I wonder if they worked and worked and worked and prepared because they wanted it to be right. They wanted it to be excellent as it was done. I think about when uh, Brother Dale, years ago, when he went to China with the singing churchmen, and they came to a church where they were going to sing. And when they got off of the buses, he said that they heard singing inside the church. And Bill Green, he's such a stickler for time and schedule, he about panicked because he thought they were late. As Brother Bill talked to the pastor, you know what he found out? The people in the church there in China, it was so important to them, that they gathered early before the service to practice their congregational singing. You know why? Because God's worthy of it. They wanted it to be the best. They didn't want to be fumbling around with words or notes or rhythms or anything like that. They gathered early so they could sing to the Lord. Now, doesn't that bless you? To think about people who care that much about congregational singing. A lot of people don't even sing when the congregation does. Well, it's a commandment to sing, and we are to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And uh, the, those people in China took that seriously. And so I wonder if in Jerusalem, if when the ark is coming in, it's not just like watching a lunar eclipse or something like that, or a meteor shower or something. This is something that is a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and it has to be at its best. I wonder if they cleaned up the streets. I wonder if they painted anything, if they had that type of thing. I wonder if they made new clothes. I wonder if they shined things up. I wonder if they went even into the tabernacle to make sure it was clean, to make sure that there was no dust, to make sure that things had been repaired if they needed to be repaired. After all, it's a very old tent. I wonder what all they did to get ready for all of that. But there was preparation. And so my question would be tonight as we just think about point number one, are you prepared the Bible says in the book of Amos, prepare to meet by God. Are you prepared? Are you prepared for the coming of the Lord, Christian? Are you thinking about it? Are you ready for it? Is your life cleaned up? Is your mind focused on it? Can you say with the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I can remember when I was a kid and there was a lot of prophecy uh, fervor back then and a lot of different movies a thief in the night a distant thunder image of the beast all of those they were kind of cheesy but uh, that was going on a lot churches had the charts of the end times and that kind of stuff up there and uh, my dad would get all kinds of prophecy newspapers and things 
And uh, I can remember thinking, I'm never going to graduate from high school. The Lord's coming back. I'll never get to drive a car. I'll never get to go out on a date. I hope the Lord doesn't come too soon. Do you feel like that? I was lost. I had an excuse. But you know, there are some people that whenever they think about the end times and they see something, they go, oh, that, 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 that kind of sounds like a one world government. That kind of sounds like, you know, all of that. And they're fearful about it. You shouldn't be fearful about it. Your Lord is coming. He's promised these things. And these things should get your attention. And it ought to cause your spirit to be lighter. It ought to cause your heart to rejoice because the King is coming. Are you ready for Him to come? Are you prepared? And of course, the first thing you have to do to get prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ is to repent of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, surrendering to Him as the sovereign, the ruler of your life, and trusting that His blood shed on the cross is the total and full payment for your sin. Nothing in my hand I bring, the old hymn says, simply to thy cross I cling. Are you ready for the Lord to come again? Are you watching? Are you waiting? Are you anticipating His coming? And so that's number one. The preparation that they must have made is the preparation we must make, not physically, but of course spiritually. Secondly, there's got to be some discernment. I thought it was interesting. The response when they say, open up the gates, the response is, who is this king of glory? See that? What a strange question. Who is the king of glory? Now, back in those days when they didn't have the communication that uh, we do or anything like that, can you imagine how awful it would be if somebody cried out, open wide ancient gates and let the king of glory in. And if they just go, okay, and they open it up, what if it's the king of the Philistines? What if it is a Philistine military operation and they've gotten wind of all of this and so they subvert it and they are going to come in and attack the city by pretending to be something that they're not? Oh, well, nobody would ever do that. You ever heard of the Trojan horse or anything like that? I mean, it happens. It happens. So who is it? And they better have the right answer. Okay? I used to watch Hogan's Heroes when I was a kid, and I thought it was funny. And uh, I can remember that when the uh, prisoner, POWs, when they would go into town to do a, a sabotage mission or something, they always had these uh, passwords, and they always had things they were supposed to say. So Colonel Hogan would go up to some guy dressed, you know, in just German civilian clothes, and he would be looking at a newspaper or lighting a cigarette or something, and then he would just casually say, the birds fly south. And this guy over here, if he was the contact, he was supposed to say at the first sign of spring or after or whatever it is. Maybe the birds fly north. I don't know. I don't remember now. And uh, I, hey, I'm older. And uh, so that's how they knew what was happening. Now, can you imagine? The guards are up there in the guard towers. They're right there along the gates. And they know they better not open the gates just for anybody. And so when they hear the cry, open up the gates. Who's out there? Who goes there? The king of glory, the Lord. Who is the king of glory? He's the Lord of hosts. And he uses this very Hebrew, very 
uh, biblical term for the Lord, and that gives him a clue. These people know what they're talking about. They don't worship idols. They know the true and the living God. They don't worship false gods. They know the true and the living God. And so there has to be some discernment. Did you know that Jesus told us that uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 24 and verse 13, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. See what we're doing here? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Well, wouldn't it be awful during this time when they're bringing the ark in to be deceived? Wouldn't it be awful that at such a high and holy moment, a celebrated moment, it ends in bloodshed and death and with the enemy coming in and, and ravaging the city? Wouldn't that be terrible? And wouldn't it be horrible if it were your fault? What if you were the one that was tricked? What if you were the one that said, open up the gates and then here comes the enemy and you can't get them closed fast enough? Wouldn't that be terrible? Well, Jesus is telling us here that before he comes again, get ready for a bunch of deception. People are going to be telling lies and calling it the truth, knowing what they're doing. There's going to be a lot of what we call gaslighting coming on. People trying to convince you something that you know is not right. They're going to try to convince you that it's right. It's what Isaiah predicted when he said that there are going to be those who call good evil and evil good and light for darkness and darkness for light. I mean, could it be any more prophetic? in the times in which we live? Did you ever think you would see it to the degree that you're seeing it now? I mean, we always knew it was possible, but oh my goodness, it's coming on us like a flood. And the media will lie to you, politicians will lie to you, the culture lies to you, social media lies to you, and they go on the idea that if we say it often enough, people will start to believe it. And you know, every once in a while, we find ourselves being a little embarrassed, backing down a little bit, not being quite as vocal because we're not sure what kind of reception we're going to get. And Jesus told us, before he comes again, there are going to be pseudo-Christs. False Christ. Can you imagine? Oh, well, I would never fall for that. Well, Jesus is warning here the disciples, the apostles, the people that wrote down all of our doctrine in the New Testament. And he's saying, you be careful because you could be the one that is deceived. Paul said to us, let him who thinks he stand take heed, lest he, what? Fall. Yeah. And the first thing we have to do is to realize we could be the next one that's deceived. We could be the next one taken captive. We could be the next one that falls for something that is not true. In fact, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11.3. He said, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. In other words, when it says simplicity, that's not a put down, that's saying uh, the singleness on Christ. Something's gonna, somebody's going to come along and add something to Jesus, Jesus plus something else, and pervert the gospel. And they did that. Remember in Galatians with circumcision? That's exactly what they did. And it says in verse 4 of uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 
For he who comes preaches another Jesus. Did you get that? Another Jesus whom we have not preached. Or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, well, you may well put up with it. He didn't say you'd lose your salvation. He said you would tolerate it. You would kind of go, well, you know, we don't agree and we don't see eye to eye on everything. There was a guy named Serenthius. Serenthius. There's a name for your next child. Serenthius. He lived uh, back in the, early, the days of the early church. For uh, you ladies who went through the uh, Jen Wilkins study on 1 John, you'll uh, kind of perk up on some of this, I hope. Uh, the Gnostic movement was very, very big. One of the things that the Gnostics taught was anything that is material. See, it's material. Evil, evil, bad. Material, bad. Material, bad. But that also gave another problem. Material, bad, evil. And anything that was just simply spirit was good. Angels, good. Voice, ah, See, that was good, they would say. That was good because it had nothing material to it at all. And they would say that and then they would go, this business about God sending his son in flesh can't be. God would never put his perfect holy son in something like an evil fleshly body. I know it's weird, but that's what was going around then. That's what they thought. And so this guy named Serenthius, he came up with the idea that Jesus, that we read about in the Bible, was indeed God's son, but his time in an earthly body was only temporary. Well, you know, we would kind of agree with that. There was a time when Jesus didn't have a body, and then there was a time that he does have a body now. And where we would differ with him is if Serenthius said, and, uh, you know, he left that body. We would go, no, that body was raised out of the grave and ascended to God. And in that body, Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father. And there's one mediator, the Bible says, between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He's still in flesh even today. No, no, can't be. Can't be. Because they had a philosophy, and so they had to make the Word of God fit their philosophy. Always Dangerous. Let the word of God determine your philosophy. Don't impose your philosophy on the word of God. What Serenthius taught was that Jesus was just a man. Just an ordinary man. When he was born in Luke chapter 2, just an ordinary baby. When he went to the temple at age 12, just an ordinary 12-year-old. And then um, when he was 30 years old and he saw John the Baptist and John the Baptist baptized him, and when he came up out of the water, you remember, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove. Serenthia said, That's when Jesus became the Son of God. Before then, just an ordinary, regular, normal human. But at that, something special happened, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And only at that moment was he the God-man. And then Serenthia said that before he was nailed on the cross, in that awful thing, the Spirit was taken from him, and he became an ordinary man again. And he said that's why he cried out on the cross, My God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me? Because everything godly was taken out of him and he died a horrible death. You say, well, that's just crazy. It is, isn't it? And that's not what the Bible teaches. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. It's crystal clear. Crystal clear all the way through. But Serinthius said, no, it can't be that way. And that became known as the Serinthian heresy. Well, of course, you know, nobody believes that now. I want to give you a quote from a lady named Victoria Osteen. That name Osteen sound familiar? This is Joel's wife. She said, and I quote, Jesus was a mere man until his baptism and the Spirit of God touched him and God put the Spirit of the living God in him. Get that? Jesus was a man until God touched him and put the spirit of the living God within him. In other words, she has bit on the Gnostic doctrine, the Serinthian heresy that Jesus had a time when he was man but was not God. Do you remember at our Christmas Eve service what the points of what we talked about was? There was a time... When Jesus was not man, but there was never a time when Jesus as man was not God. Well, she thinks so. Serinthius thinks so. And you know what that is? It's a different Jesus. That's what Paul warned us about in 2 Corinthians 11. And he said, and I'm afraid that some of you will tolerate it and you'll fall for it. You know, there are so many people that they come to church and it's so wonderful. And they think there's just anything that mentions Jesus, anything that anybody ever says about Jesus. Well, as long as Jesus is there, oh, it's all okay. No, it's not. Sometimes they are false Christs, false Jesuses. They are imposters. They are pseudo-Jesus, and they're not the Jesus of the Bible. And only the Jesus of the Bible can save, and only the Jesus of the Bible is worthy of your faith. Nothing else. See what I mean? And so when we look at this, we have to have not only preparation, are you ready for the Lord to come? But you have to have discernment because there are any number of people, any number of preachers, any number of churches, any number of false beliefs that are going to come after you and try to appeal to you that, hey, this is maybe not exactly what I believe, but I see where they're coming from. It's somewhat reasonable. Well, we all believe in the same God. At least they mention Jesus. Not everybody that does that. Paul said it could be a different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel, and you are not to tolerate it or put up with it, right? Discernment. Now, there's a third thing that uh, comes to mind as I think about all of this back and forth about the ancient gates and everything is... Why did they say it more than once? One of the things that uh, if you watch a, a good crime show and you watch a good lawyer and the cops and everything, what they like to do with the bad guys, or the alleged bad guys, got to keep it right, is they hear the story at the crime scene. Then they take them to the police station 
take them in that room there, and then they talk to them. And I can understand how hard this would be, and you must be scared, and, you know, good cop, bad cop, and everything. And then they have them tell their story again. And you know what? If the two stories don't quite match up, the cops go, wait a minute. Something in the milk ain't white. And so they pick up on all of that. And then they have them testify in court even if they can bring charges against them. And they're always listening and they have the jury listen. Hey, they changed their story. Back over here, he said it was the butler did it. And now he's saying that the maid did it or something like that. And, uh, you know, what is it? And what, what really happened here? Well, that's what's going on here. You're getting ready to make the city vulnerable. You're getting ready to open up the gates and so you want to make sure that the story is the same. You want to make sure that they're all working together and that they're telling the truth and that this isn't an imposter. This isn't just somebody who got lucky, so to speak, and said the right words. You got to make sure on all of this. And so they go back through it again. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. And it makes me think of... Uh, the fact that so many people make an assumption about Jesus, an assumption about their soul, an assumption about their salvation. When the Bible tells us, I've even heard, back up here before I read the verse, I've even heard preachers at an altar call talking to somebody and say, well, now that you prayed that prayer, don't ever let anything question or doubt your salvation again, right? Well, 2 Corinthians Chapter 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified, but I trust that you will know that you are not disqualified. In other words, Paul says, I'm not doing this to make you doubt. I'm doing this to affirm that you are truly trusting. Not in your baptism, not in the prayer you prayed, not in what the preacher said, not in what your friend said, not in what your mama said. Are you trusting in Christ? He died for your sins. He was buried for your sins. He was raised from the dead. He is the full and only payment for your sins. Romans 8.16 says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. But even at that, oh, I feel saved, and I feel like God's telling me I'm saved. Go back to the Scriptures and look at that and make sure that you indeed have repented of your sins and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not just an emotion, not just an event. When I was 10 and I walked the aisle, I wasn't trying to deceive anybody. I really thought that was a good thing to do. And I remember walking down and getting about halfway down and thinking, this will make them happy. I wasn't trying to be a bad kid. I wasn't trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. I wanted to join the club. I wanted to be a part of it. It was a part of our family. And I loved those people there. I wanted to be a part of them. And uh, yet, when I look back later on, was I trusting in Christ? No. I don't know what I was doing. I don't know what anybody said to me. But it wasn't that. I had to examine myself and I found out that I was not truly born again. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-10. through 10. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, this isn't to be haphazard, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness uh, brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love now listen to this 
For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that his sins, that he was cleansed from his old sins. That's called doubting your salvation. You need to grow in the Lord. You should be sanctified. You should be better than you were a year ago by the work of the Spirit of God. So then he says, Therefore, because of this, brethren, speaking to Christians, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what he said to us. Now, how many people take that seriously? I don't think very many people do. I don't think very many people question their salvation. I don't think very many people ever examine themselves. They just sing and uh, quote verses and just move on like it really doesn't matter. Is it possible to be deceived? Yes. Is it possible to misunderstand? Yes. And that's why the Apostle Peter says two times here to be diligent. Be diligent to grow in the Lord so that you can see what you are adding to your faith. These good works that are coming out of your life. Not in order to save you, but because you've been saved. And then he says, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. In other words, don't take it for granted. And I think that's what's happening here as they call these things back and forth between these gates. They are reaffirming everything because this is something you can't afford to make a mistake about. And I would say the same thing about salvation. You really can't afford to make a mistake about that, can you? Because when you get to heaven and then you find out you're not, it's too late to do anything about it. And so the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter tell us that we are actually supposed to look at it like that. Now, fourthly, I think about this last thing. There's a certain point to where now we know who we're dealing with. We know that it's safe. We know that these are our people. We know that that's the ark. So why say anything else? I think maybe it boils down to simply just praising God. You know, we're called to praise the Lord. Who is this king of glory? And to the glory of God, they said, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. When I think about the king of glory, I think about somebody who is superior to all others. When I think about the fact that he's called the Lord, that is telling us about his authority and his power and his rule. And it says that he's the Lord of hosts, the host of the angelic armies which he commands. And he is the one who is mighty in battle and mighty as a warrior and mighty in victory and has won the supreme victory. And that reminds me, of Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Wouldn't you like that for your life? Strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, 
for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or transferred us into the kingdom of His Son, of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. It doesn't matter, in other words. He's head over all of it. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In other words, He outranks everybody that in all things He may have the preeminence. This is the King of glory that they were singing and shouting about at the gates of Jerusalem as the ark came in. And this is the King of glory who is on His way to receive us unto Himself that where He is, we may be also. And in the first point, we talked about preparation. But I thought about John chapter 14. Jesus says, And I go to prepare a place for you. Preparation on both ends, folks. We're prepared by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is He doing when He gets to heaven after He ascends? He makes a place for us. And what a joy and what a fellowship, what a union and reunion that is going to be when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus will sing and shout the victory. Why? Because He indeed is the Lord of glory, the covenant promise-keeping God who has already won the victory and the battle is His and His victory is ours. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? Amen? Father, we come to you today thanking you for this psalm and we don't understand all of it because there's some things we just don't know. But if we're right about this, And we think about what those people were doing as they brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem where it belongs, into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies to reinstitute Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement and all of those things. What a day of rejoicing and celebration it must have been. And Father, we also think like the early church, what it must have been like when you ascended after you'd been on earth for 33 years and endured temptation and suffering and rejection, when you were nailed to the cross, when you were forsaken by God for our sins, and then when you were raised from the dead and then ascended back up, what it must have been like in heaven when those ancient gates of pearl opened up to let the King of glory in. And that just reminds us of what a celebration it's going to be when everything is over, when it's through, and when you tell the Son to come back and get us and we are caught up to be with the Lord and to meet Him in the air and thus to ever be with the Lord. And then one of those days after that, after the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, when you mount that white horse and come back and destroy the beast and the false prophet and conquer the world, and we reign with you and we will see the Lord of hosts the victory of God, the glory of our God, the King of glory, just like David speaks of in this psalm. 
Thank you for including us in that. Thank you for what that day is going to be like. And thank you that it's not an if you can do it. It's just a matter of when you do it because you've already won the victory. And we claim that victory and stand in that victory tonight. And we do it with joy because Jesus is Lord. And it's in Him that we place our trust. And all God's people said, Amen.